Okay, cardiovascular emergencies. Like I said, we're going to talk about all that. Heart disease has been the leading killer of Americans since the nineteen since nineteen hundred. Of course, now that kind of goes hand in hand with the age of the American too, right? The younger we are, what what kills more of us than than heart disease? Accident. Preventable accidents, right? Because I guess we're out there doing more crazier things when we're younger, I guess. But as we get older, that plaque builds up in the arteries in our heart, and so then uh, this kicks in. Um, healthier lifestyles and access to improved medical technology would have, would avoid many problems. And again, it, it's something that's not really taught a whole lot on the EMS side, but the fire service, we've been teaching fire safety, education, fire prevention, things of that nature since the 1940s, right? So what's happened to the number of fires since then? Progressively going down, 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 and down. Well, unfortunately, we're still killing about a hundred of us a year, with the exception of one year. Anybody think of that one? Two thousand what? Two thousand one. Yeah. Turns out we killed about four hundred that year for that one reason. But uh, um, but on the medical side, there hasn't been that strong educational push. Um, you're starting to see it come around more and more now, but uh, we really should be out in the public. We should be raising public awareness of things uh, that we could do to make ourselves healthier and uh, and kind of avoid some of these problems. And as we talk about all these different medical emergencies, whether we're talking about strokes, whether we're talking about heart attacks, whether we're talking about the respiratory conditions that, that we covered last chapter, um, a lot of these things are caused by the same, I guess, lifestyle choices, things of that nature. There's a whole, there's a big common thread that runs through all of them. What do you think one of the biggest one is? Diet. And? Lack thereof, but smoking. Smoking's a big one. All right, see, y'all seen this before already, haven't you? The heart, the, the blood vessel, and the blood. What, what was, what's the, the book has a raggedy drawing of something. The triangle. The triangle. But we prefer the what? Three the three-legged stool, right? Because it makes more sense, right? The heart's the pump, the blood vessel is the container, and the blood is the fluid, and it's just simple hydraulics. You have to have enough fluid in the container for the heart to be able to maintain pressure. And you can flip that all the way around. You know, the heart's got to be pumping effectively enough, effectively enough to keep the vessels or the or the blood passing through the vessel. Any any problem with any one of the three goes down, and then the whole thing falls apart. As it says there, all components must interact effectively to maintain life, because that oxygenated blood has got to get to all the cells of the body so that internal respirations can take place. The heart is a muscular cone-shaped organ whose function is to pump blood throughout the body. It is located behind the sternum. They say it's about the size of your clenched fist. Um, and what is that area where the heart and great vessels are located? What's that area between the, the lungs called? Mediastinum. Mediastinum. 
The heart muscle is the myocardium. Medical prefix myo, M-Y-O means what? Muscle. Root word cardi, C-A-R-D-I. Heart. The pericardium, prefix peri means around. So what is the pericardium? It's that membrane that is around the heart. Okay? And the heart consists of four chambers, two atria, which are the upper chambers, and two ventricles, which are the lower two chambers. What is the primary function of the atria? To receive blood. The right atrium receives blood from where? Yes, but it's coming from the rest of the body via the vena cava, either the inferior or superior. The left atrium receives blood from from the lungs via the pulmonary veins. Okay? And what are the two atrioventricular valves that separate the atria from the ventricles? Bicuspid and tricuspid. What's another name for the bicuspid? What's another name for that? There you go. What's the strongest chamber in the heart? Why? And every time it contracts, it ejects how much blood? And we call that... Man, y'all were on it. And this old drawing, that's all that drawing. That drawing is really tracing a drop of blood to the human body, right? Who wants to do it? Brad, you looked away. I don't think I can today. Well, won't you try? Try your best. Start any way you want to. See, that's how good I am to you. Uh, so, in the lungs. Okay. Then it goes to, um, I'm not sure. All right. Huh? So you looked at me. He looked away from me, and you looked at me. Um. Hmm. Logan? Cameron, I ain't going to ask you, because I know you know. Go ahead, bro. All right. Uh, right atrium. Right atrium. Now, hey, listen to me. If you don't know it, you need to be writing it down again. Or, hey, you can go and listen to the podcast, whatever you want to do. But this is something you need to know. I apologize. Go ahead, Jason. This is where I'm going to get a little bit mixed up. Is it the bicuspid or is it the tricuspid? Tricuspid? Which one do you think? I'm going to say tricuspid. Okay, we can go to Vegas because you have a 50 shot. You pay it? Huh? You pay it? I said we could go. <laughs> All right. So you said the eight, right atrium through the tricuspid valve. Into the right ventricle. Uh-huh. Uh, then the semilunar. The pulmonic semilunar valve. Yeah, the semilunar. Uh, into the pulmonic. Uh, into the lungs. The pulmonic. What's the pulmonary uh, arteries? Pulmonary arteries. Okay. Into the lungs. Yeah. Pulmonary vein. Yep. Back into the left uh, atrium. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Into the bi- uh, through the bicuspid valve. Uh huh. Into the left ventricle. Uh-huh. Um, into the aortic valve. 
through, through the aortic valve into the aorta, uh -huh. uh, all the way down to through the uh, arteries, arterioles, capillaries, uh, venules, veins, uh, all the way up to the inferior superior vena cava, back into the heart. That's correct. That's correct. And if EMT students don't know that, well, aorta. That's funny. Some of y'all get that later. Alright, so here we go. Blood passing from the atria to the ventricles pass through one of the two atrioventricular valves. And it's always an easy way to remember where those valves are located, right? Between the atria and the ventricles. The tricuspid and the bicuspid. What are the muscles that contract that manipulate the valves of the bicuspid and the tricuspid valves called? What are the name of those muscles? Inside of the, the chambers of the heart that contract and open and close the bicuspid and tricuspid valves? Papillary, papillary muscles, yes. They're the papillary muscles, and there's tendon that run from those muscles to, the, to those cusps as well. Anybody know the name of those? Yeah. I, I think there's one P. The papillary muscles and the chorda. And I think I spelled that right. D I N. D. D I N E A E. Close enough. The papillary muscles and the chordae tendinae. All right. The two semilunar valves divide the heart from the aorta and the pulmonary arteries. The pulmonic valve regulates blood flow from the right ventricle to the pulmonary artery, and the aortic valve regulates blood flow from the left ventricle to the aorta. Sergeant Slaughter, how are you? You look like you're tired. You got to quit running them streets. Oh, 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 I really run a street. Alright. And we covered that already too. What's unique about the aorta? Largest artery in the body. That is correct. Alright. The electrical conduction system of the heart. Mechanical pumping action of the heart can only occur in response to an electrical stimulus. I think uh, I gave you the example of your the engine in your automobile, right? That the mechanical moving up and down of those pistons are not going to happen until you, well, I show my age a lot, but either turn the key or you push the button now, right? To energize the electrical system. The electrical system has to fire in order for the mechanical pumping to take place, okay? So you can't have the mechanical pumping without the electrical conduction system working properly. But can you do that in reverse? Can you have the electrical system work fine, but the mechanical pumping not take place? The answer to that is yes, you can. You, you can have the electricity without the mechanical pumping, 
but you can't have the mechanical pumping without electricity. Is that clear as mud? All right. And think about your, your heartbeat and your breathing. Can you have a heartbeat and not be breathing? Yes. Can you be breathing and not have a heartbeat? No. no that one ain't going to happen. Okay. So it's kind of the same concept. The brain partially controls the heart rate and the strength of contractions via the autonomic nervous system. What chemical neurotransmitter innervates the autonomic nervous system and speeds up the heart or makes the heart strong, or the heart's contraction stronger? What makes that happen? Go ahead and say it loud, Brad. Epinephrine. Okay. It says the heart itself, however, coordinates the contraction. And what is unique about cardiac cells? What's the one word thing that makes them unique from any other muscle? Automaticity. That means it can create its own electrical impulse. Okay? Skeletal muscles can't do that. Uh, uh, smooth muscles can't do that. All right, here we go. Six parts of the cardiac conduction system. Who can tell me the part that's not represented on this slide that I told you all about? It does begin with a B. The Bachman's bundle. I'll give it to you. Where is it located? Come on, man. Right it's, in, it's, in the, it's in the uh, left atrium. All right, you got, I told you all about the three intrinsic pacemakers of the heart, or the three parts of the heart that fire or create an impulse that will generate a heartbeat. What's your first one? What's your first line of defense? The SA node, the sinoatrial node. And it's located right up here in the right atrium. It fires, and what is created on the ECG tracing when the when the SA node fires? Which one is it? John, you said the first bump, and that's right. What is the first bump called? And it ain't first bump. No, don't be changing what you're saying now. It is a positive deflection. Because what's this imaginary line that runs right here? The isoelectric line. Because iso means equal, right? It's not doesn't have a positive deflection, doesn't have a negative deflection. It is equal in its, I guess, um, charge, if you will. So the SA node fires, it creates a P wave on the ECG tracing. And as we travel from left to right on the ECG, that represents what? Time. SA node fires. And the current travels through the internodal pathways to the a, uh, AV node, but it also washes over here into the Bachman's bundle, which is located in the left atria, and the atria contract, right? What sound does that make? 
love or S1, right? Y'all remember us talking about S1, S2, S3, and S4? Which ones are normal? S1 and S2. If you have S3, that means you have love dub and then a swoosh or a click or something. You're only supposed to have love dub, love dub, right? S1, S2, S1, S2. So the SA node fires, creates a P wave on the ECG tracing. The current travels through the internodal pathways to the AV node and across to the Bachman's bundle. Love, the left, the, the atria contract, ejects blood through the tricuspid and bicuspid valves into the ventricles, and the current is held up at the AV node for just a fraction of a second. You remember us talking about that? Because I told you sometimes that's called the AV junction too, right? And, and I, it just gets held up for a fraction of a second while the atria contract load the ventricles with blood stretching them out a little bit, right? Which law is in effect now? It's going to make them contractions a little bit stronger when the ventricles contract. Y'all don't make me go get my rubber band. Huh? Starling's law. That's right. Because the muscles have to kind of stretch a little bit so the resulting contraction will be strong. But anyhow, then it passes through the AV node down to the bundle of his, to the left and right bundle branches, to the Purkinje fibers, dub, the ventricles contract, ejects hopefully about 70 milliliters, right? 70 milliliters come out of the right ventricle, it's going to go to the, to the lungs to pick up oxygen. The 70 milliliters that comes out of the left ventricle goes to the aortic valve, to the aorta, and the rest of the body for the internal respirations wherever oxygen is needed at that moment. We remember all that? Good. So somebody explained to me, well, I guess I need to back up. The SA node fires that creates the P wave. What is this complex right here called? PQRS. It's the QRS complex. And when is that generated? The depolarizing of the ventricles, or the ventricles contracting, that's correct. So, what is this one? The T wave, and that represents the repolarization of the ventricles so they will be excited enough to accept the next, the impulse that comes from the next P wave, right? So the ventricles can contract again. Now, and correct. It's getting, it's, it's increasing the excitability of the cells and the ventricles so they'll be prepared and able to accept that next impulse and contract. Remember the example I gave y'all was that toilet in there. Remember that? Because think about the, the ventricles contracting just like you flush the toilet. But if you flush the toilet and then turn right around and hit the valve again, what's going to happen? Nothing. Or if you wait just a few seconds, but not long enough for the bowl to completely refill, and you hit it again, you'll get like a little partial flush, right? A premature flush, if you will. In the heart, we call those PVC. Premature ventricular contractions. 
Somebody hit the lever on the toilet before the bowl filled up again, right? But if you let enough time pass to where the bowl's completely filled, then you hit the valve again the next time and you get another contraction of the ventricles. Does that make sense? In a real country kind of way? Yes. That's how I had to learn, man. Yeah. Um, is any of that confusing? Do I need to explain that anymore? Okay. So somebody explain ventricular fibrillation to me. What is it? Yeah, it's just sitting there quivering, right? What's causing that? Something's out of rhythm, yeah. Because it really gets into a proper rhythm. Yes, but why? You said it. the first line of your first line of defense is the SA node, right? How many times a minute will the SA node fire typically? Up to one fifty. Up to one fifty. That's correct. But normally we're looking at about sixty to hundred, right? But if that doesn't fire, maybe they had a heart attack, a myocardial infarction. There's a little piece of dead tissue in the right atrium now. And maybe it fell right on top of that SA node. So now the SA node's not going to work, right? So what has to create the impulse? AV node. If, if it's being fired from the AV node, what will not be on the ECG tracing? No P wave. Because that ain't working. Okay? All right, so it's firing from there. Or, or let me just take a step further just for complete clarity here. You may have a P wave. But it's traveling from a different direction now, right? It, it ain't traveling from here down, correct? So if there's one at all, it might even be upside down. Because you're looking at direction of travel of electricity when you look at ECG, ECG tracing. But don't let, if that confuses you, forget I said it. It won't be there at all or it'll be upside down. More likely it won't be there at all. So the SA node doesn't fire, but the AV node fires. What's happening to pulse rate as we go down the heart? It's slowing, right? That's usually 60 to 100. That's probably going to be about 40 to 60 beats per minute. But let's say that the AV node doesn't fire either. What generates the heartbeat? The Purkinje fibers, typically. What's happening to heart rate? 60 to 100, 40 to 60. About 20 to 40, right? Is that How well is that going to sustain life? Yeah. All right, so and here's the deal. How does the AV node even know that the SA node's not firing? Because it's not firing, it's not pushing that oxygenated blood down, cells start to become a little hypoxic, right? When it becomes a little hypoxic, it says, hey, the SA node's not doing his job, I better fire, right? But then if the AV node's not firing either, then all this stuff down here gets really hypoxic, right? But instead of the Purkinje fibers firing, sometimes 
What's that one word that makes all cardiac cells unique? And that means they can do what? Okay. This cell over here says, uh-oh, I'm hypoxic, and it fires. Then this cell over here says, uh-oh, and it fires. And this one fires, and that one fires, and that one. That's the quivering of ventricular fibrillation. Ventricular fibrillation. What else can cause that besides the myocardial infarction? Well, ventricular fibrillation? Just if the heart stops beating for whatever reason. Once it, 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 80%, and y'all write this down, 80% of adult patients who are in cardiac arrest initially go into the field of ventricular fibrillation. Now, why is that important for you to know? What do these folks need? Huh? Because you can do that high quality CPR all you want, and you should, right? Early and often. But they need that reset button. They need to be defibrillated because they're in defibrillation. Does that make sense? Yes, ma'am. Which part? They're in defib or ventricular fibrillation. The heart's just quivering. They need to be defibrillated. Y'all with me? Alright. Excitability, conductivity, and automaticity. Excitability is the ability of cells to respond to electrical impulses. That's what I was telling you about with the T wave. It's repolarizing the ventricles, making them excited enough to accept that next impulse. And we've already talked about the other words. And you can see in this picture the love dub, love dub, love dub. said most of this already but back over here the autonomic nervous system hormones and the heart tissue itself control the chronotropic dromotropic and inotropic states of the heart we've talked about those several times now right chronotropic state is the rate of contraction so is it fair to say that if the SA node doesn't fire the chronotropic state of the heart is compromised because the heart rate slows down, right? The dromotropic state is the rate of electrical conduction. How fast are those impulses going from the SA node through the internodal pathways over to the Bachmann's bundle, down to the AV node, to the bundle of his and right and left bundle branches for Kinji fibers? How fast is that happening? Okay, And just know now, when you go on to become a paramedic, the cardiac medicines that you give a patient, especially if they're having some sort of cardiac event, typically most of them affect one of these three states of the heart. And the inotropic state is the strength of contractions. So if someone has suffered from an MI, is it safe to say that the inotropic properties of that part of the heart are affected. Absolutely. And what will they probably have if the heart attack is large enough? What state will they live with for the rest of their life? What condition, I should say? Congestive heart failure. 
Alright. Autonomic nervous system has two parts. We already know this. Again, this is review. The sympathetic and parasympathetic. The sympathetic side regulates or, or mediates that fight or flight response. The general adaptation syndrome, right? What are the three stages of the fight or flight response? Y'all can look it up in the book. I don't care. What are the three stages of fight or flight? No, no, that's shock, buddy. The three stages are three parts of the of the fight or flight system, or the general adaptation syndrome, which is the same thing. Alarm response. Something happens, bam! You've got this this alarm response. The epinephrine's released, right? Then what? Reaction or resistance. Reaction or resistance. That's when you make up your mind: Am I going to leave, or am I going to stand my ground and handle whatever the situation is? And then what happens if you don't if you don't resolve it soon enough? Recovery or exhaustion. You'll either mediate or mitigate the situation, or you'll run, eventually run out of epinephrine, and you'll just be exhausted. All right. What about the pupils? What are the pupils doing when all this is happening? A little bit dilated, right? The parasympathetic is the opposite. It slows heart rates and respiratory rates. Um, and again, sympathetic and parasympathetic in the body, it, it's an antagonistic type system. The body speeds these functions by inhibiting its ability to slow it down. And it slows these body systems down by inhibiting the, its ability to speed it up. Y'all tracking? Receptors in the blood vessels, kidneys, brains, and heart help maintain homeostasis. The barrow and chemoreceptors, we know about those. Y'all stretch yourself. All right, let's go ahead and get started back. This slide's called the cardiac cycle, but that's kind of what we've been discussing the last, I guess, 10 minutes or so. It is the process that creates the pumping of the heart. It's, it's that electrical impulse firing, atria contracting, ventricles contracting, and then it happening all over again, okay? Um, it begins at the myocardial contraction, ends at the next contraction. And again, what makes anything move through the human body? A pressure gradient, right? And what creates the gradients in the vessels? Of the ventricles. All right. Ventricular, systole, diastole, preload, and afterload. Y'all remember these terms? What is ventricular systole? Ventricular systole is when the ventricles contract, right? Think about the blood pressure. Diastolic over... There you go. Systolic over diastolic. All right. Um, represented... 
with two numbers, right? So if you have a BP of 120 over 80, what's that number? So that's the diastolic. What does the systolic number represent? Pressure against, uh, exerted against the arterial walls when the ventricles contract. Systole is ventricular contraction. Okay? So the bottom number is the amount of pressure exerted on the walls of the artery, arteries when the ventricles are relaxed or ventricular diastole. You, who remembers what how to calculate a, a pulse pressure? Yeah, well, it's not really a, it's, it's really just a simple mathematic concept. It's not really like a, how do you get a, the pulse pressure? You subtract the, the diastolic from the systolic. So if you have BP at 120 over 80, what's the pulse pressure? Simple as that. But that helps you track a couple of different conditions, okay? Because sometimes if if the, the pulse pressure is widening or, or getting larger, that tells you one thing, but if the pulse pressure is getting narrower or the number's getting closer together, that tells you something different. A widening pulse pressure means ICP, increased intracranial pressure. A narrowing pulse pressure tells you that they've developed something that may lead to obstructive shock. Would be a bad idea. I mean, you need, but you have to trend the BP. If they walk in and get one BP, I mean, if you talk them into hanging out, let you do it again in a few minutes, that, that's fine. But if, when you get to trending those vitals and you notice what those pulse pressures are doing, uh, so my question, my last question was, if you have a narrowing pulse pressure, that might indicate another condition. It could lead to obstructive shock. What would that be? Anybody remember? There's two things that will cause obstructive shock. Pericardial tamponade. That's correct. It's, it's, that is the answer, but the other one might be a tension pneumothorax. But the one that causes a narrowing pulse pressure is pericardial tamponade or, or cardiac tamponade. Same thing. Alright, so that is systole and diastole. Preload is the amount of blood that's returned to the heart because a pump can only eject what it receives, right? And afterload is the amount of work against which the left ventricle has to, I guess, overcome to eject, to create those pressure gradients to eject the blood through the uh, aortic valve into the aorta. We're looking at arthrosclerosis, uncontrolled hypertension, things of that nature will increase afterload. And stroke volume is the amount of blood ejected per contraction. 
Cardiac output equals stroke volume times heart rate. If someone has a heart rate of 100 beats per minute, what is their cardiac output? 70 times 100? There you go. Add a zero. Again, if you're affecting cardiac output, if cardiac output is decreasing, what else is decreasing without even measuring it? You know it for a fact. Blood pressure. Blood pressure. Cardiac output's reduced, so is blood pressure. Because that's really what you're calculating here. And that affects perfusion of the body's tissues. Alright? The presence of pulses is a good indicator of blood pressure. I've told y'all before, you come up to a conscious patient and you feel for a radial pulse. If the radial pulse is there, what do you know about their blood pressure? Automatically. Sir? Yeah, it's sufficient to sustain life at least, right? They've got at least 80 systolic if you can feel a radial pulse. At least 80 systolic if you can feel a radial pulse. What do they have if you can feel a carotid? At least 60 systolic. And that's where you feel for a pulse if they're unconscious. Carotid. And the Starling's Law of the Heart, that's what we talked about the other day, it's what we talked about earlier, that's the old rubber band thing, right? Increased venous return to the heart stretches the ventricles to some extent, resulting in increased cardiac contractility. The further those muscles stretch, when, those when the atria contracts and ejects that blood through the bicuspid and tricuspid valves into the ventricles, that's sometimes called the atrial kick, okay? It's pushing that blood into the ventricles, causing them to stretch out as they feel. And the further they stretch, the more preloading of the heart you have, the further they stretch, the stronger that resulting contraction is going to be to a point, Right? What's the liquid in blood? What are the formed elements in blood? Yeah. Platelets, also called thrombocytes. What do they do? Help with the clotting process. You got other things like thromboplastin and other things, but just know that the platelets are, are thrombocytes, uh, aid in clotting blood. Then you've got the white blood cells, also called the leukocytes, right? What do they do? Help fight off infections and foreign, I guess, pathogens that have entered your body. And then you have the red blood cells, also called the... Urethrocytes is how I've always pronounced it. Now, whether that's right or wrong, I'm not sure since... Since I butcher everything else, I'm assuming I'm mispronouncing that too, but urethrocytes are red blood cells. And why are they red? Because they contain, they contain iron, 
okay? But it also has hemoglobin, which is a protein that the oxygen molecule will adhere itself to. So it, the red blood cells are responsible for the transport of oxygen. We good with all that? Blood vessels in your body, um, what are the three layers that all vessels are made up of that we've talked about before? And all three of them start with tunica, T-U-N-I-C-A, right? What's the one in the in the middle? Tunica media. What's the one in the in the very center, I guess, or the closest to the inner lumen? Intima or whatever. Tunica intima. Tunica media, and then the one on the outside, adventia, tunica adventia. Structurally, what's the difference between an artery and a vein? Sir? Okay. Well, now, if you're looking at arteries, the walls will be thicker in arteries because they, they have to contain more pressure, right? But there's a structure inside a vein that's not in an artery. A valve. That's right. That way, as the, as the ventricle contracts and, and, and pushes that pressure wave through your system, when that venous return of blood's coming back up between the contractions, as it comes back up your leg, if the valves don't catch it, it'll just drop back down, right, because of gravity. So valves prevent it from going, um, from going uh, the opposite direction. Alright, what did we say that the heart provides with oxygenated blood first? The heart, the, heart. the heart itself, right? Does the heart receive oxygenated blood? Well, what, during which part of the cardiac conduction cycle does the heart feed itself with blood? During which phase? Is it ventricular systole or ventricular diastole? We can go to Vegas because it'd be too much pressure for the coronary arteries if if it receives blood during systole. Basically, it kind of back feeds into the coronary arteries during ventricular diastole. Okay, I know what I'm about to tell you is not technically true, but according to the EMT curriculum and everything, how many coronary arteries do you have that the book talks about? Huh? Nine. It tells you you got nine. But what are the two main ones that they talk about? Right and left, correct? Which one bifurcates? The left. What are the two branches of the left coronary artery? What's the one that goes down the front? What's, what's the branch of the left coronary artery, and use medical terms here, that goes down the front? Anterior, anterior descending, right? It's the left anterior descending branch. 
or you hear them talk about it in the cath labs all the time, the LAD, right? Left anterior descending. And the other one goes around the back side of the left ventricle. That would be the circumflex. circumflex. Says coronary arteries arise from the aorta shortly after it leaves the left ventricle. And then when the aortic valve opens during ventricular systole, it kind of covers the, cor the, the, the opening or the entryway to the coronary arteries. That way when it closes during ventricular diastole, that's when the oxygenated blood kind of back feeds into it, okay? The right coronary artery divides into nine branches. The left coronary artery divides into two branches, which will subdivide even further. So is it not true to say then that when we're talking about the actual coronary arteries, you've got the right and left, all those others are branches of either the right or the left, okay? What side of the heart controls pulmonary circulation? The right side, that's correct. What side of the heart controls systemic circulation then? Left. All right, pathophysiology, we're talking about chest pain. When someone is in the pre-hospital environment, and they pick up the phone and call their public safety access point, which would be 911, dispatch, whatever you call it. They dispatch you, you come running. They have chest pain. As far as you're concerned, what's wrong with them? They are having a heart attack until proven otherwise, okay? Chest pain related to the heart usually comes from cardiac cell ischemia. Cardiac cell ischemia is what causes the chest pain. What is ischemia? It's dysfunction due to a lack of oxygen, right? So how do you fix a lack of oxygen? You give them oxygen, right? Okay. It ain't hard. Chest pain related to the heart usually comes from cardiac cell ischemia. And the best way to fix cardiac cell ischemia is to give them oxygen. Okay? What's actually causing the pain of a heart attack? Now, I know we say cardiac cell ischemia, but those cells have to produce energy, right? With or without the oxygen, correct? What's the byproduct of that metabolism without oxygen or anaerobic metabolism? What's the byproduct? Lactic acid. And that's setting on the heart, and that's what's causing the pain. All right? Now, acid follows carbon dioxide in the body. Wherever the carbon dioxide goes, acid's going to go there too. So if you increase oxygen in... Do you think that's directly related to how much carbon dioxide is going to leave? It is. And I just told you, acid follows what? Carbon dioxide. So you're going to give them oxygen. That's one of the things you're going to do. Okay? There's a decreased blood flow to the heart muscle. The heart muscle fails to get enough oxygen and nutrients. The tissues starve and will die if blood flow is not restored. Okay? 
ischemias, ischemic heart disease. Um, part of the reason, or a big reason why they, the parts of the heart can't receive enough oxygenated blood is atherosclerosis. Diminished blood flow because of a buildup of plaque and, and uh, cholesterols and things of that nature inside the coronary arteries. Closing the dimensions or, or the diameter, if you will, of the inner lumen of the vessel. The vessel's smaller on the inside, so that tells you right away less blood can pass through, right? But let's go back to hydraulics as well. It's smaller now. You got the same amount of blood. What's that doing to the pressure? It's going to increase it too. That may not be a good thing, especially when we come out of the coronary arteries. Cholesterol and other fatty substances form plaque, obstruct the blood flow, and eventually can completely block the vessel off. Everything downstream of that blockage now doesn't get oxygen. Arteriosclerosis can also cause reduction of blood flow. That's when the actual arterial wall itself gets thicker, loses elasticity. You're talking about uncontrolled hypertension for years, things of that nature um, can cause that. Then a little piece of plaque breaks off and and I know this is uh, cardiovascular emergencies, but they're showing the brain because I want you to think about a heart attack and a stroke. And I told you at the beginning of this lecture, I said a lot of the lifestyle choices that cause all of these bad pathos that we deal with are real, real similar. Well, that's true, but the way they happen and the way they affect the body are really similar as well because when you think of a stroke that's when a piece of plaque or, or a blood clot or something breaks free usually from the somewhere in the lower extremities or whatever travels through the vasculature gets hung up in the brain blood flow downstream or or, or the i guess the gray matter or the or the uh parts of the brain that's downstream of that occlusion now doesn't have oxygen right so it's ischemic at first but eventually it's going to infarct or die because of a lack of oxygen if something's not done, right? So, a stroke is kind of like a heart attack of the brain. And a heart attack is kind of like a stroke of the heart. Does that make sense? It's the same thing. Something gets in one of those vessels and occludes it. Everything downstream starts to dysfunction because of a lack of oxygen. And if it's not corrected, it will die. And turns out it's not good for a piece of your brain or a piece of your heart to die. Does that make sense? Now, there's another type of stroke when one of the vessels ruptures. But that wasn't what I That didn't prove my point to point that out. So, but be aware. Blood clots, it flows through the vessels until it reaches an area too narrow for it to pass through stops there and blocks blood flow at that point and tissues downstream will experience hypoxia then of course ischemia and then of course infarction and that is your MI myocardial infarction 
it is daily, not to return. And AMI stands for what? Acute myocardial infarction. That is the classic heart attack. Uh, what are the signs? Of, how you know if someone's having a heart attack? What? Are, how will they present to you clinically? Usually, ma'am, chest pain. How will that feel? That pain feel to them? Like an elephant sitting on their chest. It could be a pressure. Um, what else? Arm or hurt, left arm typically, but it could be the left arm, right arm. May have pain between the shoulder blades. I heard it feels like really strong indigestion. I've heard that. I've heard it explained that that way as well. That's why it's a reality. Sometimes people are discovered dead, laying on the couch with a bottle of antacid tablets next to them and a bucket full of vomit because they get really, really indigested. They think they get sick nauseated, think they've got some bad indigestion, take an antacid tablet or something and lay there and die. It happens. What else might they complain of? Think of fixed principle. Shortness of breath. The pump's jacked up, right? Something's going on with the pump. It's not ejecting that full 70 milliliters. It's not getting that oxygen. That's just a link in the chain, right? So chest pain... Maybe complaining of pain. The classic is down the left arm, maybe in the left jaw. They could have pain between the shoulder blades. Shortness of breath. Those are the classic symptoms, right? Maybe a little nausea, vomiting. What would the skin look like, you think? Pale, cool, diaphoretic. I want everybody in the room to write this down. Diabetics and elderly females... Or more likely to suffer from silent heart attacks than anybody else. And what that means is they may just complain of a little difficulty in breathing. They may not have chest pain. Diabetics and elderly females. Why diabetics? Why do you think they don't feel pain like maybe everybody else? You ever heard of diabetic neuropathy? The little nerve endings are starting because of fluctuations in their blood sugar their whole life. The, the ends of their nerves really aren't functioning right. So they don't feel pain. And that's because of neuropathy. They feel it, but not like everybody else. So diabetics and elderly females may complain of shortness of breath only. And any elderly patient that fell from a standing position needs to be placed on a cardiac monitor to rule out a cardiac emergency because they may be walking, standing, whatever, that something happens to that cardiac output, it drops pretty quickly, they get lightheaded and pass out and fall down. Elderly patients, need, you need to rule out a cardiac emergency for any elderly patient that fell from a standing position. Now, you may get there, and they may be laid on the floor next to this wadded-up rug, and they say, I tripped on the rug. 
or one of them little yippy ankle biting dogs running around them. Whatever. Put them on a cardiac monitor, rule out a cardiac event. Make sure that's not what's going on. It'll be life or death if you don't. Okay? So we talked about the oxygen. Somebody's having chest pain gets oxygen, right? How are you going to give them oxygen? What delivery device? How many liters per minute? 10 to 15, but you're just going to give them 15, right? What percent concentrations of oxygen are you delivering with that? 85 Okay. How many liters of oxygen is in a D cylinder? What's the cylinder constant for a D cylinder? 0.16. I always put that zero there. That way you don't get confused in paramedic school. Okay. So, and what's the first thing the paramedics going to do when they get there? Take it off. Take it off and you're going to let them do it, right? So, that's fine. Um, what else do they get? All right, now, what if their breathing's not adequate, though? Back valve mask. All right. So you've got them on oxygen via non-rebreathing mask. What else are you going to do for them? What's the first thing you're going to do for a chest pain patient? The very first thing you're going to do for a chest pain patient is position of comfort. That sounds silly, but it's true because if the more comfortable you make them, how's that going to affect their heart rate? Okay, slow with that. Okay, position of comfort. You have them on oxygen. What else? Medication cards, I want you to find your nitroglycerin card real quick on page. And you go and grab your aspirin one also. Nitroglycerin and aspirin. Listen, while you're doing that, I want to tell y'all, this is somewhat out of date and it's somewhat out of your scope of practice as an EMT or even advanced EMT, but it, maybe it'll help you remember what all a chest pain patient gets. They used to teach us back in the day the Mona protocol because every chest pain patient as a parent, now some of this is out of your scope of practice, but it'll help you remember. They got morphine, they got oxygen, they got nitro, and they got aspirin. Mona. So I guess you could do the, the ona. We don't even get morphine for that anymore. You have fentanyl. Yeah, but don't. Yes. But again, morphine is out of your scope of practice. But they get oxygen, nitro, and aspirin. How much nitroglycerin do you give them? How do you give it to them? Okay. You got the tablets, which is the most prominent way that you see it out there. You put one, you administer one sublingually. What does that mean? Under the tongue. When you put it under the tongue, it should fizz. They should feel it fizzing under their tongue, okay? And you ask them that. Do you, do you feel it fizzing? Um, if it's working right, what does the nitro do? 
but it causes vasodilation, right? And vasodilation will give them a headache. Now, what's going to happen if you drop that nitro tab in your bare hand and hand it to them? You're going to get a headache. Make sure you don't touch it with your bare skin because it's going to get on you and get in you, and you're going to have a pounding headache because of vasodilation, okay? Um, so, and nitroglycerin tablets come in a little brown glass bottle, too. Why do you think it's brown glass? Nitro, it will, it will become, well, sunlight breaks down nitroglycerin, okay? So you put it under the tongue, you wait three to five minutes, what do you need to assess, or what should you assess prior to? When is nitro contraindicated? They're having chest pain, so you know, hey, I probably should give them nitro, Hypotension. If, if their blood pressure, if their systolic pressure is less than 100, you don't give them nitro. Because that's going to do what to their blood pressure? Makes the vessels bigger, containers bigger, has relative hypovolemia at that point, right? Pressure's going to bottom out even more. So as long as it's not contraindicated because of hypersensitivities or uh, hypotension, you give them the nitro, three to five minutes later, you reassess blood pressure, right? And what if they tell you they're still hurting and the pressure is still adequate? Give them again, up to three times, waiting three to five minutes in between and constantly monitoring that BP, okay? And you have to use a little bit of common sense. If their blood pressure is like, and you got to think about it too. If somebody is hypotensive or really close to being hypotensive, having these chest pains and shortness of breath, what should be happening to their blood pressure because of the anxiety and the pain? The heart rate too should be going up, right? So if heart rate's going up, but blood pressure is real close to hypotension, what does that tell you? It tells you that heart's not working right. And if you feel their pulse, their pulse rate will probably be irregular. Right? Irregular heartbeat, pressure around there, the classic signs and symptoms, and the skin's pale, cool, diaphoretic. You know something's happening because sick folks look what? Sick. It ain't hard. So as long as that blood pressure maintains, you give them up to three. But listen to me. If the blood pressure is 160 over 90, then you give them one and it goes from 160 over 90 to 105 over 60, they're still over 100 systolic, right? Mm -hmm. But if that one tab dropped it that much, what do you think the second one's going to do? Common sense ain't that common, but you've got to use it. You have to think. That's called critical thinking. Because the textbook says they're still systolic over 100. I can give a second one. But you have to look at what that first one did, assume that the second one would do the same and don't do it. Does that make sense? All right. All right, so we said, we're talking about the owner, oxygen, nitro. So the nitro dilates the blood vessels, allows that oxygenated blood to get around that clot that's formed in the coronary arteries. So it's increasing the oxygen supply, right? Which therefore decreases the oxygen demand. So what happens to heart rate? 
it starts to slow down. And that's what decreases the demand. The increased heart rate is what's increasing the demand. It's doing more work. It requires more oxygen, right? But if you make the vessel bigger, more oxygen gets in. It's increasing the supply, but decreasing the workload at the same time. So we're giving them oxygen, making the vessels bigger so the oxygen can get there, therefore decreasing demand. So what's the aspirin do? Thins the blood. It 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 uh, helps to prohibit further the the clots from for, forming any further. Okay. How much aspirin are you gonna give? Them? What's the book say? One sixty to three twenty-five. Yeah. In reality, what are you gonna give? Them? They come in 81 milligram tablets. So if you give them four, that's 324 milligrams. I defy you to figure out a way to give them 325. This is not reality, buddy. This is a book. But here's the thing. You can't get to reality without knowing the book, though. So uh, 324 milligrams of chewable aspirin. They don't call it baby aspirin no more. It's chewable aspirin. And um, but the book says 160 to 325. Don't give them anything by mouth like water. Why? What's another sign and symptom of a heart attack? Nausea, right? Anything that drops blood pressure pretty quickly or increases blood pressure pretty quickly will produce nausea. Okay? Don't give them anything by mouth. The chewable aspirin, nitro, oxygen. Position of comfort. Not necessarily in that order, though, right? Any questions about any of that? Now, and being a great patient advocate, if you see a paramedic or anybody else asking somebody having chest pain to walk to the ambulance, being a good patient advocate, what are you going to do? You take charge. That's right. Go get it yourself. Sir, no sir, have a seat. I'll go get the stretcher for you. You might literally save their life. Might not make a world of difference at all because it might not even been a heart attack. But who wants to roll them dice? Not the kid. All right. Controllable risk factors of a heart attack. Controllable risk factors for a stroke. Controllable risk factors for. Yeah. Congestive heart failure. Controllable risk factors for emphysema. Controllable risk factors for chronic bronchitis. What's the first thing on our list? Listen to me. It'll never be easier than today. It's only going to get harder after today to quit. Cigarette smoking. Uncontrolled hypertension. Elevated cholesterol levels. Elevated blood glucose levels. Sedentary lifestyle. If you're sitting around on a beanbag eating Cheetos all the time, although fun, is a controllable risk factor. 
Don't nobody have stress in their life, so we ain't got to worry about that one. Those are things you can control 100% and prevent all of those conditions we just talked about. Major risk factors for an acute myocardial infarction that cannot be controlled is getting older. There's only one way to control that. That's not a good option. Die young. Die young. A family history. Can't control that. And being a man. <laughs> but you know, that's changing. More and more ladies are having heart attacks now, too. That's a fact. Why do you think that is? You say men? But <laughs> somebody else just said something else. Dynamics change. That may I don't. That's what I think, Adam. Because we don't have the, I guess the classic gender roles anymore. You know what I'm saying? It may very well be it. I don't know. There's just as many ladies out there fighting and doing the jobs and dealing with stress and coming home and then everything else. Is, and But in the 40s and 50s, that was typically the guys. So, I don't know, just a guess. All right, whenever you see ACS, acute coronary, acute coronary syndromes, all we're really talking about is things that cause chest pain, okay? Because that's consistent with myocardial ischemia, right? What happens to ischemia if it's not fixed? Turns into death or infarction. There you go. Uh, it can be a temporary situation like angina pectoris, and that's just like Latin for chest pain. That's what that means. And angina is chest pain. There you go. And so angina must be hurt. I don't know, or pain, or. I was thinking of working out. Yeah, yeah. working pectoral muscle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be stupid, but that's what I did. So. And then it ain't stupid if it worked. So what is the difference between an angina, which is just temporary chest pain, and an MI? What are the differences? How will you know the difference in the field? You won't know the difference. The difference is an angina will eventually go away, will self-resolve. But here's the thing, time equals tissue, right? You're not going to hang out in somebody's driveway and say, ah, dog, this might quit 30 minutes from now. You know? <laughs> Everything might quit 30 minutes from now, right? So you don't have the luxury of time, or I should say the patient does not have the luxury of time. Uh, you'll probably go home next morning, but... Um, Signs and symptoms are similar. We treat it the same way. Uh, we treat it as a heart attack. And then if it stops en route to the hospital, once they rest, typically people who have angina, they know it. They've already been diagnosed. Not always, but usually. And if you show up, they're sitting in the chair and they've already taken a nitro. Pain's starting to get a little bit better. That's what's called a stable angina. They know how their chest pain is going to develop and they know how to get rid of it, okay? Um, but an angina is kind of, 
an angina is to an MI as a tremor is to a heart attack, okay? It's telling you what's coming if you don't do something different. And it's going to progressively get worse. But if someone sits down, and what if someone's having chest pain and you show up, what are those questions, those pain questions? O, P, Q, R, S, T, and I, right? If you get to getting all that information about the pain, and does anything make it better or worse? Well, if I sit down and rest and I take my nitro, it, 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 start, it starts to get a little bit better. That makes you think, well, it might be an angina, right? You're still going to treat it as an MI, but in the back of your mind, you know, okay, but this might be all right. But if they say, I took three nitros before you got here, it's just as bad as it was when it started, or my, and they have an irregular heartbeat, Yeah, that's usually when, not usually, but sometimes they'll look at you and they'll say, I think I'm going to die. Or am I going to die? Or I think I could die. Sense of impending doom. They know it. So, so what do you tell them? Yeah. Come on. Come on. Come on. Dog, I'm looking at you, and there's a damn good chance. <laughs> no. You're always honest with them, but you know. You're right. Yeah. Just let them know you're going to do everything for them, and hey, you're showing signs of a heart attack. You might very well be having one, but let's hear. We're going we're gonna to help you, we're going to get you to the doctor. But anyhow, they'll know sometimes. Angina is pain caused when the heart tissues are not getting enough oxygen. And again, that is ischemia. And it's for a brief period of time. It will resolve. It might be as simple as, you know, I told you they have stable angina, then you have unstable. Stable is when it, the pain is predictable. They know when it's going to come. They know how to take care of it, and it goes away. Unstable is when it starts acting uncharacteristically. Does that make sense? And it might be as simple as it's the first time that they cut the grass. In springtime, first time the grass needs to be cut. Well, now they've had all winter without cutting the grass, uh, and that plaque built up a little bit more over the winter. So they know, well, I can cut my front yard, and... As long as I rest after the front yard before I cut the back, then my chest won't start hurting. But they get out there for the first time that spring, get halfway through the front yard, and the chest starts hurting. Well, it's changing, okay? A little on the unstable side. And do y'all understand the concept of how when they're resting, their chest doesn't hurt, but when they exert themselves, it'll start hurting? Do you understand why? Because of that buildup of that plaque, and now the inner lumen's smaller, there's still enough oxygenated blood getting through to meet the demands at rest. But as they move, exert themselves, and heart rate picks up, now it's not big enough to supply everything they need. Anaerobic metabolism kicks in and lactic acid sets on the heart. Make sense? What are we talking about? Angina can be not necessarily because of a, uh, a plaque. The artery could spasm a little bit, too. 
usually described as crushing or squeezing, stable or unstable. What is the um, one, only one way to 100, God, dog, I can't talk. What's the one way to definitively diagnose a heart attack? Can we do it in the field? You get to the hospital, how can they tell you 100% for a fact whether someone's having a heart attack or not? We can, we can take a pretty good guess by the EKG. We can do that in the field. And 12 leads are considered diagnostic quality. But in all reality, there's one way to, to definitively call somebody having a heart attack. They draw arterial blood gases. Arterial blood is coming directly from where? The heart. The heart. And they pull those blood from the arteries. they got to go deep, usually in the wrist. They'll go deep, and they get arterial blood, and they're looking for an enzyme in there. There's this particular enzyme... Troponin. That is the enzyme that dying heart tissue produces. So if troponin is there, they know that heart tissue is dying. Releasing troponin, therefore it's a heart attack. Does that make sense? If your troponin's not there, it's just ischemia, no death. Because it has to die to release troponin. Y'all picking up what I'm putting down? Good deal. Boom. All right. So acute myocardial infarction. We've gone beyond ischemia, right? Now we're actually dying. And we're producing what enzyme? Troponin. Troponin. They're tripping, huh? Hearts tripping. They tripping. All right. Acute myocardial infarction is the leading cause of death in the United States. Now, and I'm not trying to insult anybody's intelligence, I promise. But you'd be amazed at the people who don't understand that there's a difference between heart attack and cardiac arrest. One's definitely going to proceed to the other a lot of times. I want to say, and don't hold me to, to these statistics because I could be off, but my mind's telling me about 38% of heart attack patients die prior to arrival to the hospital. But that just might be a certain type of heart attack, I'm not sure. But just know it's possible, <laughs> okay? If you're having a heart attack, that could lead to cardiac arrest. But it's two different things. Is everybody clear on that? All right, good deal. Not trying to insult anybody. And what's one of the biggest problems? Like people have heart attacks. What's another actual sign of somebody having a heart attack? Do you think they're really quick to admit it? Or do you think there's a lot of denial that goes along with that? Yeah. Yeah. Nah, it's just a little indigestion. Let me take these tablets and lay on the couch and give me a bucket, right? Arrhythmias 
cause 90%. What is an arrhythmia? Okay, just an irregular rhythm heartbeat. And a lot of times they're kind of lethal, right? So if 90% of them are caused by something that is preventable, that means the majority of heart attacks are preventable, right? And of course, if you look at all those preventable causes too, right? Like the smoking, the sedentary lifestyle, things of that nature. The pain of an acute myocardial infarction signals the death of the cells. And again, it's dying, lactic acid setting up on the heart muscle. Uh, once dead cells cannot be revived, they're, once they're gone, they're gone. And there's two schools of thought or two different ways to treat a myocardial infarction. One is fibrinolytics. The medical suffix lytic means destruction of. So what does a fibrinolytic do? Destroys a clot. Clot busters. You're looking at alteplase, uh, sometimes called TPA. They push a medication into the vein, it gets into the coronary arteries and dissolves the clot. Other types, they have to have angioplasty. Plasty, the medical suffix plastic, means the surgical repair of. <coughs> angio, root word angio means vessels, right? So you're either pushing a medicine that's going to dissolve a clot, or you're actually going in their femoral artery, usually, and pushing the cable all the way up through their vessels till it gets into the coronary arteries of the heart. They blow a balloon up at the end of it, it allows blood to pass through that clot, then they put a stent in there that maintains this new size of the vessel, heart attack's gone, okay? Depends on the type of heart attack. If they're having something that's called a STEMI, have we talked about STEMIs? All right, everybody needs to write this down. And I want you to think about the ECG tracing, okay? A STEMI, STEMI stands for ST elevation myocardial infarction. ST elevation myocardial infarction. Now, now think about your, your ECG tracer. ST. Where's the S and the T at? Okay. So this is the QRS, right? And then that's the T, right? So on the ECG tracing, it might look something like that. that the passage of time, right? QR, oh shoot. Or it might look something like that. That's ST. Elevation, it's above the isoelectric line. Does that make sense? <coughs> Stimmies. Fibrinolytics are not going to fix that. 
they have to go for the angioplasty when they go in the femoral artery, push a cable up into their heart, and clear the blockage. And when you think of a STEMI, now it's going to look something like that. Um, there's different variations depending on what size of vessels blocked uh, and how much depth there is and everything else. But I want you to think about, a, when you're thinking of a STEMI, alright, y'all work with me here for a minute. Let's say we just we just took a heart and we cut it right down the middle. And we're looking at a cross section of the ventricular wall right here. Does that make sense? This is outside the heart here. This is inside the, the ventricular chamber. And this is the wall of the heart muscle itself after we cut it right down the front. Y'all follow me? Clear as mud? A STEMI is when that area of a non-STEMI or an in-STEMI is if there's enough depth to where this part right here is dead. Just a small inside layer or whatever. But a STEMI is when that depth transverses the entire wall of the ventricle and it's all dead. It's too much for the medication to dissolve the clot at that point. They have to go in there and pull the clot out. Y'all... Y'all good? Okay. Signs and symptoms of acute myocardial infarction. We've talked about this, but sudden onset of weakness, nausea, sweating. And I'm telling you, when they're sweating, it depends. Sometimes they're in bed, AC's kicked down about like 68, and they're literally pouring sweat. Okay? That's called diaphoresis. Chest pain, pain in the lower jaw, arms, back, abdomen, or neck. What might an elderly female or a diabetic complain of? Only, yeah. Irregular heartbeat. Nothing makes the pain better. Nothing makes the pain worse. It's there. Syncope. It might pass out. Difficulty breathing. Might have pink, frothy sputum. Maybe they don't. Or they just may go into cardiac arrest. Most common symptom is chest pain. But it is different than the pain of an angina in three ways. May or may not be caused by exertion. Again, I told you, nothing makes it better, nothing makes it worse. It is there, even when sleeping. Does not resolve in a few minutes. Or may or may not be relieved by rest or nitro. <clears throat> There'll be a decent amount of anxiety, pale, gray, ashen skin, increased pulse rate, blood pressure most likely elevated unless that death really gets significant, right? Difficulty breathing, that feeling of impending doom we talked about. Arrhythmias, abnormal, abnormality of the heart rhythm is a ventricular dysrhythmia. V-fib. We've talked about V-fib. Does everybody understand V-fib? Majority of adult patients who go into cardiac arrest are in what? And they need what? D-fib, right? AED, defibrillation, and high-quality CPR. 
What would we say PVCs were? Contraction, yeah, ventricular contraction, premature ventricular contraction. Um, the ventricles, just like the name implies, something's going on and the ventricles contract sooner than when they should, the premature. Tachycardia, heartbeat over 100 a minute, bradycardia, slower than 60. Ventricular tachycardia is a very rapid heart rate. Normally between 150 and 200 because what can only fire up to 150 times a minute? That's SA node. So if it's above 150, you know it's not coming from the atria, right? Or not the SA node, anyhow. Three or more, everybody in the room write this down. Three or more PVCs in a row constitutes ventricular tachycardia. Three or more PVCs in a row constitutes ventricular tachycardia. So if you're working out and your heart rate's above 150, that's not your thing. Okay. No, I mean, if you're working out like if... Like your dog or something. And, and now we're talking about resting pulse rates. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, if you're exercising, you're putting more demand, but the more and more you exercise, the more and more your body will get acclimated to that and your pulse rates won't get up that high. Okay. So. What are your two shockable rhythms? What are your shockable rhythms? V-fib and... That's paramedic stuff. Don't don't even don't let that come out of your mouth again until you're in paramedic school. Uh, V-fib and pulseless VTAC, pulseless ventricular tachycardia, and V-fib. Any how you know the difference? If they're in VTAC on the cardiac monitor, you feel for a pulse. If they don't have a pulse, then that's shockable. Pulseless VTAC and V-fib. Are your two shockable rhythms? Is asystole or flatline, is that shockable? According to the book and ACLS algorithms and American Heart Association and everybody else in the world, asystole is not shockable. And you have to think about it, you have to give them meds. What you do is understand, like with V-field, pulseless VTAC, You've got irregular or chaotic electrical activity, and that defibrillation is like a reset button. You're trying to knock out that erratic electrical activity with the hopes that normal will take its place. And if it doesn't, then that's where your medications come in to work on the dromotropic, chronotropic, and inotropic properties of the heart. Okay? So if you have no erratic electrical activity, there's no need to shock it to knock it out because there's nothing there. What? Probably completely out of what we're doing. When would the dentist come into play? 
Yeah, that's paramedic level yeah. stuff. But that's if it's really, 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 really fast. That dromotropic state is hyperactive and it slows it down. I've seen, I saw a video of just like it stops everything and then boom, they're back. Yeah, well, that's what it does. It, yeah. it pretty much throws them into cardiac arrest, hopefully for about five seconds. So reset everything? Mm -hmm. Same concept as a reset, but. All right, here we go. Tachycardia, pulse rate over 100. Bradycardia, pulse rate less than 60. That's what VTAC looks like. Ventricular tachycardia. What do you not see? You don't, you don't really see P waves a whole bunch, right? Because what is generating that pulse in ventricular tachycardia? The ventricle. V field. Ventricular fibrillation. That's all them little cells, all the ventricles. That's that quivering of the heart. And that's asystole. Complete absence of electrical activity. Again, not shockable, not shockable. What is PEA? Have we talked about PEA yet? PEA stands for pulseless electrical activity. You literally can have an ECG tracing that looks completely normal, but there's no associated heartbeat. None. Activity. No, I was just going to say, yeah, if you just look on a cardiac monitor, you'd think, man, that's perfect. That's a perfect heartbeat. But there's just no pulse. It goes back to you treat the person, not the machine, right? So... No matter what rhythm you're looking at, and these cardiac monitors will show you how many times a minute the heart's beating. Oh, man, they got a beautiful pulse. It's a sinus rhythm, about 82 beats a minute. Man, they're doing great. They could be hammered dead. It ain't real till you feel the pulse, and you feel that pulsation under your fingers every time that monitor says there's a heartbeat. Then you know you can believe it. Okay? PEA used to be called like EMD, Electrical Mechanical Disassociation. That's old terminology there, but that's it's an easy way to remember it too, though. So you're saying that that PEA would show up on that monitor as that actual like, that, the pretty pulse. Like that, 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 that normal sinus rhythm. It'll look just as pretty as it can, but there's just no heartbeat. None. They're dead. So, PEA is not shockable. Asystole is not shockable. But V-fib and pulseless V-tac are shockable. Okay? Now, you go put an AED on somebody, you ain't got to worry about figuring it out, right? Because if it's not one of these two, it's not going to shock. But you need to know that for the test what's shockable and what's not. Cardiogenic shock. We've already talked about that, haven't we? The heart has been damaged. That cardiac output is so severely reduced that now they're showing signs and symptoms of shock. Okay? Usually caused by myocardial infarction, right? They've had a heart attack. And if they survive this cardiogenic shock, if, if someone acts aggressively enough and they don't make it to irreversible, right? And mods don't take them out. 
they're probably going to live with what for the rest of their life? Yeah. Treatment for cardiogenic shock. What's the first thing listed? Position of comfort. All right. Administer high flow O's, right? Got to give them some O2. Assist ventilations if necessary. Preserve body heat. Don't even read that next one because we're not doing IVs yet. Keep them warm. Maybe even elevate their feet, right? Shock position. To help gra allow gravity to help you keep blood to the vital organs. Diesel bolus. Get them to the hospital. Congestive heart failure. The ventricular myocardium is very damaged. Can no longer keep up with the return of flow uh, of blood from the atria, so it begins to back up, right? If the left ventricle is damaged, where will blood back up into? The lungs. If the right side is damaged, where will blood back up to? The rest of the body. They say hands, feet, and abdomen. That's called a sciety. Bless you. A.S. cities. A cities. That's where the abdomen gets swollen, and if you push on it, and when you move your hands, your fingerprints will still be in there in their abdomen. You typically see that in the feet, though, because that's the most inferior portion of the body, typically, is the feet, right? So more is going to pull down there. You could literally, they have swollen feet and ankles. You reach down there and squeeze them, and when you let go, your fingerprints stay in their feet. That's called pitting edema, P-I-T-T-I-N-G, pitting edema. Now, here's a little bit of, I guess, something very easy for you to do. If someone has, has had a history of a heart attack, they tell you they have congestive heart failure, and let's say they're laying in the bed, complaining of difficulty in breathing, feet are all swollen. What's well, something that you could very easily do that might clear up their respirations just a little bit? Well, they're already setting up, but swing them and let their legs hang off the side of the bed. Then the fluid is not going to pull so much in their lungs now, but it'll pull more so in their feet. Hydraulics. Okay. It can be right-sided or left-sided. What's that other name I gave you for right-sided heart failure? That, that told you the name that registry likes to use. Man. Y'all were ready to go when I told you that, wasn't you? That's right-sided heart failure. Core pulling out. I can't count. Core pulling out is another name for right-sided heart failure. 
the registry will want you to know. Okay? Again, orthopenia, what does that mean? Difficulty in breathing while lying flat. Agitated, anxiety, swollen ankles, hypertension. Now, that could be opposite if be kind of getting into some of that cardiogenic shock though, right? That would be a late sign. Tachycardia to kidney. Don't worry about CPAP. But here there you go. Allow patient to sit upright with the legs down. Don't don't even don't even read about CPAP yet. Don't read about the IV. Don't do that. Pulmonary edema means what? Pulmonary edema. It's when the membrane around the lungs fills up the fluid, right? Fluid in the lungs. Pulmonary edema. That's all that is. So you're kind of right there. Cardiomegaly. That's a new word. It's an enlarged heart. Medical uh, root word or suffix megaly or mega, megaly, it's an enlarged heart. Technically, when they take an x-ray of the chest, and you don't need to know this right now, but just know, and once I found this out, I always looked, I always made a point to look at it, but they'll take an x-ray of the chest, and they'll, of course, now I'm showing my age, because I think they just look at them on computers now, but... You know, they'd stick that film up on that little lighted board there, and they'll look at the heart, and they'll measure the width of the heart. And if it makes up half or more of the of the width of the chest, that was diagnosed as cardiomegaly, or an enlarged heart. And why is the heart enlarged? Because of years and years of having to work against that increased afterload. You work muscles harder, what happens to them? They get bigger. But because of Starling's Law, that's not a good thing for the heart, right? It might be all sexy and stuff if your biceps are big, but it ain't sexy if your heart's big. Ping it up, coughing up pink frothy sputum don't really attract the ladies too much. Hypertensive crisis, that is a systolic pressure greater than 160 millimeters of mercury or a rapid rise. Hypertensive emergencies begin at a systolic pressure of greater than 160 millimeters of mercury or if it's rising really fast. Now, who caught on the fact that I just repeated myself? That means you need to know that. Sudden severe headache, bounding pulses, ringing in the ear, blurry vision, nausea, And I'll tell you, nosebleeds too, and I'll tell you a story. One of the times that the hair on the back of my neck just stood up or whatever, we picked up a lady one time, and she had, to say she had a nosebleed was an understatement, sure enough. She had a bucket, and she was leaning over and just pouring blood out of her nose when we got there. Took her blood pressure, and it was literally like, this isn't exact, 
because this was years ago, but it was like 220 over 160 or something like that. I mean, it was the highest blood pressure I've ever seen in my life. And she's pouring blood, and I'm like, wow, this poor old lady. So we got her loaded up, got her in the back of the ambulance. I was still in the EMT at the time, so the medic was in the back with her, and I drove to the hospital, opened the doors, got to the hospital, opened and unlocked the stretcher, started rolling her out, and she said, young man, I feel like I got something in my eyes. And she was literally crying blood. Now, I ain't Catholic, but you've seen the the stories, right, with the statues, (laughs) crying blood and everything. Creeped me out just a little bit, I'm going to tell you. (laughs) So we got in there, turned her over, had got all the paperwork done, ambulance cleaned, back in service. I went and asked the doctor, I said, Doc, she was crying blood. What caused that? And he said that her pressure was so high, and what saved her life was probably that nosebleed. Because when the vessels in her nasal cavity popped, that probably prevented something up here from popping. Almost like a fusible link, if you will. But her pressure was so high that the, the, the vessel that popped in her, in her sinus cavity was basically shooting blood back up into her lacrimal glands, and it was just coming out of her tear ducts. I said, yeah. Yeah, I was about ready to stand there and tell her that the power of Christ compels you. <laughs> Don't start floating. <laughs> triple A's. An aortic aneurysm. A triple A. Why did I call it a triple A if it's just an aortic aneurysm? And what is an aneurysm to begin with? That's when, because of uncontrolled high blood pressure through the years, the, the, the aortic or the, the, the aorta comes out of the heart from the left ventricle. The aortic arch comes down through the descending or the, uh, the descending aorta and it runs midline right through the abdomen, right? Till it branches off to the femoral arteries right there at your pelvic girdle, okay? Well, high blood pressure for years and years will cause sometimes a tear in the wall that tunica intima, right? And blood will get between the layers of the aorta and cause it to balloon out. So I said triple A. So where is the triple A? Where's that other A come from? Abdominal. Triple A. Abdominal aortic aneurysm. Dissecting aneurysm occurs when the inner layers of the aorta become separated and allows the blood at the higher pressures because of the uncontrolled hypertension to flow between the layers and it causes it to balloon out. Now, if someone is a little tachycardic, has a history of high blood pressure, pulse rate's a little elevated, and they tell you that you know they've been having black tarry stools or they tell you uh, hurting in my flanks and you see bruising around the flanks, okay, called Gray's Turner sign, or bruising around the umbilicus, which is called Cullen sign, you know they're leaking somewhere inside their abdomen, right? Tachycardia tells you that. 
The bruising on the flanks and around the umbilicus tells you that. The black tarry stools might tell you that. The history of high blood pressure. And then when you look in their abdomen, you see a little bulged out area, midline. It's bulged out. And you ever so gently palpate that bulged out area and you feel their heartbeat. Triple A, let me tell you what you don't do. Don't push it. Don't pick them up with a bear hug. Don't do none of that. Because they won't live to see the ambulance. They will exsanguate or bleed to death in just a couple minutes. Because it'll pop. Okay? Ruptured aorta causes almost immediate death. Immediate death. Ain't much wiggle room with that one. So don't do it. Signs and symptoms may be difficult to, to distinguish from an AMI, but one thing, I told you this is usually like a red flag thing that'll kind of differentiate some of these conditions. If they tell you they feel a tearing sensation right in here, why do you think they feel like something's tearing? Because something's tearing. Because it is. That, that aneurysm's ballooning out more and more. It's tearing. Okay. Pain from an MI often precedes other symptoms like nausea, indigestion, weakness, sweating, pressure sensation, not stabbing. An aneurysm, full force from one minute to the next, a tearing, burning sensation. Uh, may exhibit different uh, blood pressures or pulses. You got a strong radial pulse over here. Maybe you ain't got one at all over here. Or maybe you have these, but there's none in the feet. <clears throat> For chest pain, complete a thorough assessment no matter what the patient says. Uh, assume the worst. It's a heart attack until somebody finds or doesn't find troponin, right? If the patient has no relief with medications, if they have no relief with rest, it uh, becomes hypotensive. Those things are dead bang giveaways. Scene size up remains the same no matter what type of patient, right? Primary assessment, ABCs, make a transport decision, then base your physical exam on whether they're priority or not. I'm assuming I don't have to repeat all of that every time, so. And then you're going to ask the OPQRST questions. And I, right? For interventions. Those are the pain questions. You need to know those things. Always act professionally and be calm. You need to ask me, have you ever had a heart attack? Have you ever been told you have heart problems? Well, if they're unconscious, but you see a big scar right here. That's called a zipper. If they got a zipper, you know they've got a heart history, right? You have diabetes. Why is it important to ask somebody with chest pains if they have diabetes? Or well, they may not have the chest pain, right? But still in all, diabetes affects their ability to compensate for all these other things. Anyhow, it just kind of compounds the problem. 
That's about medications, the onset, provocation, or palliation, quality, radiation, severity, time, and intervention. If they've taken two nitros prior to your arrival, that's when you would find it out. Have you taken anything for your chest pain? And get your sample history. Do your secondary. Reassess every 5 or 15, right? Nitroglycerin. What does the nitro do? How does that help? How does the nitro help? Allows more oxygenated blood to get around that clock too, right? Be alert for the contraindications. What are the contraindications for nitro? Hypo, not bulimia, but hypotension. Yeah. And what do you monitor after giving a nitro? Blood pressure. How many times can you repeat it? Up to three. And why will they have a headache shortly after you give it to them? Why is it in a brown glass bottle? It just ain't wanting to play, is it? Okay. Communicate and document. What's that right there? Zipper. What does that tell you? What's something else y'all notice about this picture? You got two belly buttons, don't you? Oh, <laughs> They really don't. That's from the surgery. <laughs> Cardiac surgery implanted pacemakers. Who gets an implanted pacemaker? And if you critically think a little bit, what does a pacemaker do? Increases the speed of your heartbeat, right? So who would get a pacemaker? Severe bradycardia, absolutely. Normally you don't have to worry about them. When, if it's implanted under the skin and it's under the skin right, and they're in cardiac arrest and you're going to put AED pads on them but it's right where you would put the AED pad what would you do? Move it over at least one inch away at least one inch away from the device that will be on your registry pad Alright, automatic implantable cardiac defibrillators. What's the difference between an implanted defibrillator and a pacemaker? Pacemaker speeds up the vein, defibrillation. Because they have, for whatever reason, they, they've shown that they, they can go into V-fib pretty easily. So they basically they're putting an AED inside their body. That's what they're doing, but a very small version of it. And they go into V-fib, pow, it pops them. What they do, V-tack, is it shock 
Well, it's only shockable if it becomes pulseless. And I guess theoretically, if they have a, a history of going into pulseless VTAC, pulseless VTAC turns into VFib if it's not corrected. So it's they're real similar anyhow. That's what it might look like. Generally, the electricity from the implanted defibrillator is so low that it has no effect on the rescuer. So if you're touching them and it pops the patient, do y'all notice how that sentence starts out? Generally. Talking about sometimes. <laughs> but it don't hurt. It don't. All right, cardiac arrest. Again, there's the difference. That's the complete cessation of a heartbeat. There, there isn't a heartbeat at all. They're not breathing. They are in cardiac arrest. It's electrical, mechanical, or both. Again, because you can have electrical activity and no mechanical. But it can't be the other way. AED. 20% of adult patients that are in cardiac arrest are in what rhythm? VFib. And they need an AED, right? Most are semi-automatic or semi-automated, I should say. And this is a little bit of a little bit of an outdated fact. They're monophasic and biphasic. Um, the vast majority, I mean, it's the industry standard that AEDs will be biphasic in nature. That means the electricity doesn't travel just on one waveform, okay? It travels on multiple or two waveforms, right? Biphasic. That means you can introduce lower currents, or in the medical world, we call them joules, J-O-U-L-E-S. You can hit that heart with less joules and still be as effective as the monophasic at higher joules. That causes less tissue damage. So if you if you get ROSC, and who knows what ROSC stands for? Return of spontaneous circulation. You have a cardiac arrest victim and you get an AED and start doing CPR, ROSC is what you want. R-O-S-C. If you get it and they come back, it's more likely that you didn't damage the heart so bad with the defibrillation that now they're in congestive heart failure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You said it's return of spontaneous? Circulation, yes. Return of spontaneous circulation. All right, the chain of survival. Which chain of survival are they showing around here? Adult pre-hospital. Adult pre-hospital, that's correct. What's the difference in the adult chain of survival, or I should say what is added to the pediatric chain of survival that's not only adult? The first little link in that isn't early access, it's early prevention. Because everybody in the room writes this down. It will behoove you to remember that the vast majority of pediatric cardiac arrests are caused by a respiratory problem. So a lot of those are preventable, right? 
So early prevention is the major difference between the pediatric and adult chain of survival. Respiratory problems. As your ADD is no different than anything else, you need to be familiar with the, the manufacturer uh, or the equipment that you have. You have to be familiar with the equipment that you have. The ADD is no different. Um, this is what I want y'all to do. You can go back to the National Registry website and I want you to print out the skills checkoff sheet for CPR management with AED. CPR management with AED. Go print you one of those. Start learning it. That's the next thing we'll get in the floor and do. You're going to manage a cardiac arrest patient and utilize an AED. That's one of the ones I have to check y'all off on. It is. You can look under the, the basic psych, psychomotor skills checkoff sheets. You've got advanced sheets and basic sheets. Look at the basic sheets. All right. And I want to point this out to you here. They stopped teaching us this some time ago. And, but science says what it says. And I'll leave it at that. But in a witness event, a precordial thump works like a defibrillator. A witness event. That means you're talking to a patient, maybe getting your sample history, and bam, they go into cardiac arrest. That's a witness event. You watched them die. A precordial thump is when you take your fist and you go boom, right on their chest. Now, what's the family going to think if they see that? He's beating him up, and he can't even defend himself. <laughs> right? But a precordial thump could actually make the heart start beating again. Like, as soon as they go down? Yeah, right then. You see him go down, boom, hit him. <laughs> it works sometimes, but they don't really teach that a whole lot anymore. Uh, it's, it's the same concept. Who's ever heard of something called uh, commodio cordis? That's why we have AEDs on all the ball fields now. The baseball, softball field. You know, you've ever heard of kids, I think it happened over in Fayette County a few years back, got hit in the chest with a baseball yeah. at just perfect point in time, put them in cardiac arrest. That's why you have AEDs and ball fields now. Commodio cortis. C-O-M-M-O-T-I-O-C-O-R-T-I-S. Same concept. The precordial thumb is the same thing. Just kind of in reverse. Make sense? So, if you go beat up a patient tomorrow, don't tell them, Jeff did his head. No, no, no. Don't do that. But you may be asked about the precordial thump on the <coughs> Who knows? 
Alright. This was kind of important. Indications for not initiating resuscitative efforts. Those are the definitive signs of death. You remember us talking about those? I told you it would take J.C. himself to bring them back if you see some of this. Rigor mortis. If they're stiff, don't start CPR. Just don't. You're giving false hopes to that family at that point. Dependent lividity. What did we say that was? In the lower areas, right? So if they're sitting in a chair upright, where might you look for dependent lividity? The feet, back of the legs, right? Okay. Decapitation. Don't start CPR, right? Hey, I'm thinking about the ventilation. <laughs> What's missing on here? Rigor mortis, dependent lividity, decapitation. What's the fourth definitive sign of death? Putrefaction. If they have started the rotting process, don't do CPR. You could take the decapitation and replace that with obviously mortal wound. Same thing. Big hole in the center of the chest, ain't working. If you're doing compressions on the floor underneath them, it ain't going to work. All right. Defibrillation, yeah, yeah, yeah. Once you start compressions, nothing interrupts your compressions for more than 10 seconds. Why? What's the science behind that? Okay, but... You talking about those pressure gradients? Yeah. Because I used to think at one point in time... You physically compressing the heart between the spinal column and the sternum was what was making that blood move. But that's just not true because nothing moves in nature without pressure gradients. And you're compressing that chest, you're changing the pressures, and that's what allows um, the blood to move. Sometimes doing your PPV, especially if you're doing them too hard and too fast, could that affect in a negative way the pressures inside the chest? So you need, what, they, what they're saying is you need an impedance threshold device, right? An ITD. That's a device that you would put between the bag valve mask and the endotracheal tube that the paramedic put down their trachea. and Because it, it, it's positive pressure ventilations, but it, it prevents pressures from building up inside the thorax. Because once those pressures build up inside of the chest... That's messing with the pressure gradients, and that messes up the preloading of the heart because the blood can't move back in there because the pressures are too high up here. Impedance threshold device. I said that twice. Didn't even mean to rhyme. I'm just a poet. Didn't know it. <laughs> the rest of this is just the CPR. 
Alright, this is something something to point out. If they go into cardiac arrest during transport, what should you do? And this is textbook stuff and it breaks from reality. Okay? You're checking a pulse on a patient. You got to remember you're an EMT with an AED in the back of an ambulance. The patient goes into cardiac arrest. What should you do? Huh? I can't. I'm sorry. Okay. Start CPR and then what? How does... Oh, you got the AED on them, but what might provide interference with that AED? Or an actual moving, driving down the road of the ambulance. So you should stop the ambulance, let the AED evaluate. Okay? That's one thing it says that you should do. And if you're going to defibrillate them, turn off the oxygen before you defibrillate. That's a test question. It don't happen in the real world. But what's the concept there? Electricity and a strong, strong oxidizer. Boom. Okay. So you're supposed to turn off oxygen before you defibrillate. And you're supposed to stop driving down the road to let the AED analyze. Okay. Book breaks with reality sometimes. See back there. Stop the vehicle. Stop the vehicle. Yep. In summary, we said all this. All right.